Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back. And the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. It's Friday, December 13th, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Chris Mooney. And I'm Indre Viscontis. Each week we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at climatedesk.org. You can follow us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and on Facebook at slash Inquiring Minds Podcast. So... Let me tell you a little about our show today. There are a lot of voices in this world going around telling us how we ought to live, telling us what it's good to do, what's right and what's wrong. Of course, many of these voices are religious, but they're also ethicists. And there's even, you know, your high school football coach who thinks he needs to impart life lessons to you, right? Um, So there's all these views about what's moral. But what there isn't is a lot of understanding of where this whole phenomenon of morality came from in humans, how it evolved, and what it actually helps us do, because, you know, I hope uh, our listeners won't be too scandalized if I say that morality came from the ground up, not necessarily from on high. So the good news is there's now a research movement afoot to study morality scientifically as it is practiced by humans, as it is felt. And this research is pretty dramatically redefining our sense of what is right and wrong simply by showing things like uh, right and wrong varies depending upon where you live. Uh, And Also, they're just basic natural moral tendencies, for instance, a tendency to be cooperative, especially within a small group of people. So our guest this week is one leader in this research. He's Harvard's Joshua Green, and he has a new book out entitled Moral Tribes, Emotion, Reason, and the Gap Between Us and Them. And let me play a a clip from our interview describing one of his experiments that ends up with a pretty counterintuitive result. What we find is if you put people under time pressure, they're more likely to be cooperative. If you force people to stop and think, then they're less likely to be cooperative. We have gut reactions that make us cooperative and help us solve the tragedy of the commons. And this is just one example of a lot of work that supports this idea. Well, I'm really looking forward to listening to this interview, Chris, because I think this is a key topic that science is really not addressed adequately up until now. And so I'm delighted to see that there's a, a, this research movement afoot. Um, one of the things that I find really exciting is this idea that, you know, so much of our conflict comes from our evaluation of what's right and wrong. And so if we can start to understand where these instincts come from, maybe we can start correcting some of the decisions that we make and, and alleviating some of the conflicts that, that happen between you know, us and them. Right. And I think you'll hear in the interview, I don't want to preempt it or anything, but a lot, of, a lot of that conflict is because our instincts 
uh, are maybe misfiring and getting us into all kinds of conflicts um, because we weren't necessarily built to deal with other groups. So we'll hear uh, more about that soon. That'll be our interview today. But first, Indra, I guess you've got some interesting news to share relating to the science of autism, uh, this devastating and growing problem, and how it might be related to well, you tell us. <laughs> Bacteria? <laughs> what is this? Yeah. So one of the things that's interesting about um, the, the, the spectrum disorder, so autism spectrum disorders, is that in addition to the behavioral, cognitive, social problems uh, that people face, they often also have gastrointestinal issues. So they, they suffer from cramping and other GI tract issues. And the sort of link between what's happening in the brain to cause some of these um, social cognitive problems and what's happening in the gut to cause the the GI issues hasn't really been studied very well. So there's this recent study that just came out um, in which the scientists actually took pregnant mice and they infected them with a virus. Now, it turns out that if you're a woman and you're pregnant with a child and you have a severe viral infection, you do have a slightly elevated risk of having a child with autism spectrum disorder. So, um, so what they did is they mimicked the same situation in mice. And they found that, sure enough, some of the mice that were born showed some of the symptoms of you know, autism spectrum disorders, um, anxiety and, and some social problems and, and, and so on. And so then they treated these mice after they were born with a bacteria that's a probiotic that alleviates some of the gut issues. So in this case, the particular issue is that the intestinal tract seems to leak um, a little bit. And so uh, this bacteria comes in and kind of fixes these leaks. And all of a sudden, the mice started showing improvements in their behavior. So this is really, for one thing, exciting if we can show that some of the same symptoms can be alleviated in humans simply by you know, introducing or changing the, the flora in the guts of, of people with these disorders. Um, so it leads to a potential treatment, which is, which is, I think, the most exciting part. But it also starts to help us understand how the gut and the brain might be interacting. Now, it's not to say that the flora is going into the brain and, and acting in that way, but certainly you can imagine that if you have severe intestinal issues or GI issues, it's going to make you more anxious. It's going to, it's going to influence your behavior. Um, so to me, it's, I, I think it's a really interesting study, although, of course, it's still very, very early. Mm-hmm. And it, it's mice. I mean, but, but let, me, let me ask a question because I don't know this stuff as well as you, but I, as soon as I hear it, I worry about the road that has been gone down before because I think you know that this is kind of close uh, to some of the ideas in the early uh, anti-vaccine movement. And there's this paper that's just infamous. It was retracted by The Lancet in 1998. And what it was about was uh, claiming that kids who had gotten the measles, mumps, rubella, rubella va- vaccine, MMR vaccine, they it claimed that that was upsetting their guts and their intestines, and that was what caused their autism. And so they were throwing a vaccine into the mix. I take it that this this research is not going in that direction. Well, so there are a couple of things that are different. For one, you know, this is very preliminary and it also suggests a possible treatment rather than taking away something like the vaccine uh, study was saying. Um, It's also the first study out of a lot of studies that need to be done. So no one's going to start, um, you know, making their children eat uh, yogurt just as a cure potential for potentially for their autism, I hope at least not from the results of this study. Um, and also, 
you know, there is a lot of converging evidence that there is a link between these GI problems and autism. So we need to understand what that link is. And by studying it in mice, being able to actually induce these symptoms in mice and then correct them, uh, I think is really one of the first steps that we need to go on. And and it's the right way to go about it, Um, as opposed to just finding what turned out to be a spurious correlation between the vaccine and and these, you know, these kids' um, GI problems. There wasn't a lot of converging evidence. There wasn't any converging evidence. And in the end, um, you know, that that study didn't stand the test of time. So, you know, this is a new study. We have to see whether it'll stand the test of time. Uh, But it is a step in the right direction, in my opinion. Right. Just underscores that there's, I mean, we don't understand everything about autism where it comes from remotely. It doesn't mean that it's caused by vaccines. We actually, that's one of the things we do understand, right? It's not, but but what causes it is still, you know, trying to be figured out. Absolutely. And, and it's not just autism spectrum disorders that might be involved, um, you know, in this in this interaction. The authors actually point to some of these symptoms are also present in other diseases like schizophrenia and so on that also have been associated with um, things that happen in utero related to infections and and so on. So it has a potential to really help us in a lot of different ways. Totally. Well, so let's let's go on to something else we wanted to talk about. So recently we were on Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, a great podcast, and I think it was on there that we actually threatened to do a show about or at least talk about the genetics of people's beliefs. Okay, we're like, uh, that will be controversial. Wow, let's do it. Uh, and both, I'm talking about both religious beliefs and political beliefs. So you remember this. And I'm drawn back to the subject now. Because there's a new study, and it yet, yet again, headline says, political views are heritable. And this is in the journal Political Psychology. It uses a classic twin design study. So just briefly, here's the twin study design. You have, quote, monozygotic or identical twins. That's what we know them as. And they have 100% of their DNA in common with each other. But then you have the dizygotic, and some people call them fraternal twins. And they share only about 50% on average. So you have a natural experiment. If you compare the two types of twins, large groups of pairs of twins, and you find that identical twins, the pairs have more in common than fraternal twins, then basically you're saying that this trait is genetic on this trait. So something like height, you will obviously find that. Something like hair color, you'll find that eye color and so on. So along come the studies that ask the twins about their politics or about their religion. And sure enough, the identical twins are much closer than the fraternal twins. So it's hard to avoid the conclusion that this is genetic. And I'll just add one more thing. Uh, It isn't just left-right political differences where they're finding this genetic relationship, but also something uh, that might be more basic, a questionnaire called the Society Works Best Quiz. The answers to this were apparently correlated with genetics. And so they ask people questions like, when do you think society works best? Does it work best when, these are quotes, those who break the rules are punished or those who break the rules are forgiven? Uh, People are recorded, sorry, people are rewarded according to merit or people are rewarded according to need and so on. So maybe there's something about these basic ways that we think the rules should be enforced. So I don't know. What do you think? I mean, I think it's compelling work, and I think there's obviously still a lot of work to be done. It is in line with some of the previous research that showed that something like religiosity or how fervently you believe in something um, also has this distinction between, you know, identical twins seem to be more likely to show the same amount of religious fervor, even if it's too you know, different beliefs. So if someone's, um, uh, you know, a Muslim versus a Christian, it doesn't matter, but the extent to which they believe uh, can seem, seems to run in families. 
but you know, well, that'd be an interesting family if they have identical twins and one's Christian, one one's Muslim. Okay, go ahead. Well, usually they're reared apart. <laughs> right. right. There so you, go. you know, yeah. of course, genetics yeah. and the environment are totally yeah. inextricably linked. And uh, you know, there is one caveat in these twin studies, and that you could argue that identical twins, because they look the same, um, are treated more similarly than fraternal twins. Um, so you know, there is some environmental difference that, but you know, it certainly can't account for all of these findings. But I think one thing that's important to remember is that, you know, we might talk about this as being genetic, but let's remember that, you know, it's not monogenetic. So there isn't one gene that we can find that's going to be the political gene, right? Um, Mm -hmm. Gene codes for a protein, and there isn't a protein that defines your political behavior that we know of yet, at least. I thought gene coded for Republican. <laughs> oh, it's only a protein? Okay, I see. Yeah, yeah, just a protein. So, you know, so we're still looking at a collection of genes um, that, you know, might might correlate with someone's political views. But I think that the point here is that, you know, there's to a certain extent how we behave, you know, whether it's our politics or our morality or our religion is to some somewhat tied to, you know, the very way in which our bodies are, are produced and that we don't quite have as much free will about these kinds of things as we think. Now, that isn't to say we can't change. Uh, and of course, even our genes change with mutations and epigenetic forces. Um, but it's interesting to see that the extent to which things that we think are simply either based on our environment, on how we were raised, or our own ideals really are tied to our biology. Right. And I want to reemphasize, people who don't know a lot about these research tend to leap to the conclusion that this means that people were born that way and they can't change, that they don't have choice, that you hear the phrase also hardwired. And none of this is right. That's not what it's saying at all. Um, what it's saying is something much more ali- along the lines of predisposed, um, which is and, – and so that's a big difference. That's right. And, you know, we alter our predispositions all the time, right? You know, if I come from a family where obesity is, is you know, running in, in my genes, there are things that I can do to prevent myself from going down that road. I can, you know, really watch what I eat. I can exercise more, etc. So the same thing can be true of your political views. You know, if you find that, you know, you, you come from a family in which these political views are ingrained and they're not something that you want to continue to, um, you know, believe in, you can certainly do things like educate yourself and read more and talk to people um, and, yep. and change your There views. are interventions. <laughs> <laughs> All is not lost. <laughs> okay. So fascinating stuff. And with that, let us take a short break and we'll be back with my interview with Joshua Green. This is Inquiring Minds producer Adam Isaac. I'd like to remind you that one way you can support the show is by rating and reviewing it on iTunes. It's a huge help in letting new listeners know what we're all about, and it only takes a few seconds to do. Also, don't forget you can interact with us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and on Facebook at Slash Inquiring Minds Podcast. And as always, thanks for listening. Joshua Green, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thanks. Happy to be here. We are Very excited to have you on and to discuss your book, Moral Tribes, Emotion, Reason, and the Gap Between Us and Them. So let's just start simple with some some basics for the audience. This thing called morality, what is it? Because it's not what people tend to think that it is. 
Right. So I think that the core of morality is a suite of psychological capacities that enable us to get along in groups, to cooperate, essentially to turn a bunch of selfish me's into a higher functioning us. Um, and, and the way that works is through a lot of different, largely emotional, psychological dispositions that make us care about each other, care how we treat other and, and others, and care about how, how others treat others. That's the core of it. But then uh, you know, it's also possible to think about morality in much more abstract ways that uh, are, in, in a sense, rather unnatural, but perhaps quite productive, especially in the modern world. Okay, so what, what's important about the definition that you give, I mean, I know this from reading the book, is that is that word group. So, right. you know, it's morality is almost, by this definition, it's an inherently in-group thing. Uh, yeah, so uh, so I think the, the, the clearest illustration of what morality really is is, is about comes from uh, Garrett Hardin's tragedy of the commons. So uh, Hardin was an ecologist, and his, his worry was about overpopulation, but he really presented this beautiful parable that's really about every single social problem out there, uh, whether it's global warming or nuclear pro- proliferation or the, the, the mess in your, in your college dorm's uh, kitchen that never seems to get cleaned up. <laughs> what's, what's, what's going on? Uh, so the, the story he tells is about a bunch of herders uh, who share a common pasture, and these are rational, self-interested herders who think, should I add another animal to my herd? And then they think, well, uh, I get more money at, at market time if I do, so that's good. What's the cost? Well, there's not much cost because my animals are just grazing on this common pasture. So they say, well, the costs out, the benefits outweigh the costs, I'll add more animals. But if all the herders follow this logic, then they will add more and more animals to their herd, and then suddenly there won't be enough grass on the commons to support any of the animals, and they're all going to die. And so the problem is that pure self-interest, uh, doing what's rational from a self-interested point of view can lead to ruin for everybody, can lead to an outcome that's bad for everyone. And that's the, the fundamental problem here is, well, how do you get people to cooperate? How do you get people to say, okay, I'll limit my herd, you limit your herd, and that way we'll have a nice sustainable pasture uh, that we can all live on. Um, and, and so evolution does it in effect. <laughs> Right. So right. the answer yeah. to that, to the the answer to the to, to that problem is essentially morality, um, and and extended in in law. Uh, so the, the as as moral herders, what we say is, well, I don't just care about my own bottom line. I care about my fellow herders, and so I'm not going to exploit this pasture uh, uh, just to my own ends. I'm going to limit my own self interest in order to to promote the greater good. And uh, I have sort of positive feelings that would make me do that. I care about other people. I've never Negative feelings, I would feel guilty or ashamed if I didn't. I have negative feelings that encourage others to do that. You would have my scorn and my contempt if you grow your herd uh, beyond the amount that we've agreed to. And you'll have my gratitude, my positive feelings if you if if, if you follow the rules. And so uh, those four basic categories: directed at the self, directed at others, positive and negative. Those emotions, those social emotions, are what enable us to solve the cooperation problem in a small group where we all know each other and are bound together by fellow feelings. Things get more complicated when you have many groups at work. Mm-hmm. So I want to just, I w- just want to get out some more of the basics because you, you, what you're arguing is that we naturally feel these things. In other words, this, this is an evo- morality is an evolved solution to a problem. And so the feelings are there to make us get along, right? 
Yep, exactly. And you can you can see this in the laboratory. So we've done experiments where we essentially put the tragedy of the commons in the lab where everybody has a, an allotment of money and everybody can either keep their money or put into the common pool. And then we double, let's say, what goes into the common pool and distribute it equally. The selfish thing is to keep your money. The pro-social nice thing to do is to put more money in so it maximizes the total amount that gets multiplied. And what we find is if you put people under time pressure, they're more likely to be cooperative. If you force people to stop and think, then they're less likely to be cooperative. We have gut reactions that make us cooperative and help us solve the tragedy of the commons. And this is just one example of a lot of work that supports this idea. Great. And so then the the next tragedy arrives because there's a limit to this. Exactly. So uh, I begin the book with this discussion of uh, what I uh, call the parable of the new pastures, which is a kind of sequel to, to Hardin's parable. So instead of having one tribe, you can imagine you have many different tribes. And suppose that you have uh, a number of tribes that are all living around this great big forest. And one tribe is very individualist. So the way they solve the tragedy of the commons is they say, well, we're not going to have a common pasture and we're not going to have a common herd either. We're going to just divide up the land and everybody gets their own plot of land and everybody's responsible for their own stuff. And that's one way to do it. And they're cooperative in the sense that they respect each other's rights. Another group, you might have your communist herders where they say, we're not only going to have a a common pasture, we're just going to have a common herd. We're just all going to be in this together. And that's another way of solving the problem. Uh, And you can imagine everything in between. And you can imagine these different herders have different ideas about how you're allowed to react to people who, who break the rules. So can you, you know, defend your herd with an assault weapon uh, or, or do you have to kind of be nice when someone maybe inf- in, in, inf- infringes on your property? Harmony versus, versus honor is another important dimension. And then different groups just have different leaders, different gods that they rally around, different ways of solving the problem. And then uh, now we can imagine – the, the forest in the middle of all of these tribes burns down and the rains come. And now there's this lovely pasture in the middle and they all move in and they're all cooperative. They're all moral in their own ways, but they're cooperative on different terms. They rally around different traditions, different gods, different leaders. Uh, how are they all going to get along? That is the fundamental modern moral problem is how do you get a bunch of groups who have different moral systems to get along with each other. So one one question that I had reading all this, I mean, you know, and I understand perfectly well why morality is is in group, but I don't understand why there is this variation in the groups and the moralities uh, that they come up with that end up differing with each other so much. So that's a great question. And some people point to fundamental economic differences. So you know, one theory about this is, uh, for example, Eastern societies like in China tend to be more collectivist. And some people have argued that this comes from the local ecology, that this was a good place for rice cultivation. And uh, but, and, and rice cultivation is, requires a lot of intense cooperative labor in order to make it work. Whereas other places, let's say in the highlands of Scotland or in the highlands of uh, uh, Appalachia in the United States, it's good for for herding animals like like goats or pigs. Um, Pigs not exactly herded, but uh, for, 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 for raising animals. And there... That, that would be that, that doesn't necessarily require intense cooperation, and that can work if people just everybody has their own herd and they stay out of each other's business. And so this is it's been argued that the reason why you see more collectivism in China and more individualism in parts of the United States is that really the, 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 the landscape lent itself to different kinds of uh, cooperative businesses. But 
another another problem which you don't need any sort of fancy economic explanation for is just you have different leaders you have different gods you have different religions so you're, you're not gonna you know the, the religion that sprouts up in one place is not going to be the same as the religion that sprouts up in, in another place and so you're going to have this group following the rules in this book and and, and 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 adhering to the orders of this person who interprets that book and so supposedly speaks for the one and only god and so even if you don't have any special difference there's still always going to be the we're the center of the universe. No, no, no. We're the center of the universe. Well, one of the things I know it's a little bit of a side note, but it's just so striking. One of the things in the book is that you show studies that show a dramatic difference in the level of cooperativeness between people in different cities. And and I'll note that yep. Boston and Copenhagen score sort of the <laughs> highest right. and the lowest is Athens, which is really interesting given what happened in Europe. <laughs> so, Absolutely. So this is, I mean, this is fascinating. So this is, this is work done by Benedict Herman and colleagues where they, so that I described the public goods game before where everybody gets their sum of money and they can contribute to the common pool and pull for me or pull for us. And what Herman did is he took that same tragedy of the commons game and had people in 16 different cities play the exact same game. In his version, uh, it was a repeated game. So the same people did this over and over again and they could reward or punish each other uh, financially based on their performance in the last round. So to punish somebody, you would, let's say, pay a dollar to take away $3 from somebody else. And the amazing thing about this is that there were these enormous differences in how people played these games from, from, from city to city. And as you said, in places like Boston and Copenhagen and St. Gallen, people walk in off the street, strangers they've never met before and people start out being cooperative right from the start they put a lot of their money in and things go well a few people maybe don't cooperate and those people get punished and cooperation goes high and 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 stays high and then there are other places like in in seoul and korea or melbourne australia where cooperation started out kind of mid-levels but then once the, the cooperators punished the people who weren't cooperating things would ramp up and it ends up looking a lot like boston in the end and then you see places like muscat and oman and athens where cooperation starts out pretty low and stays low. And what they found was kind of, I think, uh, uh, amazing. You might say, well, okay, I can understand if people you know, don't start cooperating, but why, don't, why doesn't punishment help? So the people who, who do cooperate, they punish the other people uh, and get them to cooperate. And what they found is that in a lot of these places, there is what they call antisocial punishment, where uh, the, the, the people who didn't cooperate would punish the cooperators for being cooperative. And when they were interviewed afterwards, they'd say, well, why are you doing this? They say, well, I just want everybody to know that you can't mess with me and I'm not going to be part of your little game. And the, the overall in, in interpretation from Herman and others is that these are places where it's not that these people aren't cooperative. It's that they don't trust strangers, that all cooperation happens based on personal relationships, kin relationships, perhaps tribal relationships, but it's you don't just walk into a room with strangers and put your money down on the line and hope that they're going to reciprocate and, and suspicious of some outsider coming in and expecting them to do this. And when they looked at questions on the world value survey, so this is hundreds of thousands of people answering the same questions all around the world, and it happens to ask questions like, how do you feel about tax evasion? How do you feel about people who jump over the turnstiles at public transportation uh, st stations and ride for free? And places where people have sort of lax attitudes towards things like tax evasion and, uh, and, and uh, not paying for public transportation were the kinds of places where cooperation didn't work out very well. And so the larger point here is on the new pastures, there are very different 
expectations in different places about what the terms of cooperation are, about what people, especially strangers, owe each other. And you know, that can be uh, – well, that can that, – that, you, you see those kinds of expectations playing out when it comes, for example, to protectionist policies that you might have in the economic sphere or should we be you know, paying our dues to the UN and, 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 and participating in this international community or are we skeptical of this kind of uh, you know, cooperation with people out, outside of our tribe? Got it. So these, these are the you – know, descriptively, these are the different moralities and clearly they vary – and clearly people come into conflicts. So then I guess if we sort of pivot to the rest of the book when you're not just sort of laying it out anymore, I mean, it seems like there's two important things to cover, which is that first you ultimately say the the morality that works best is utilitarianism, but then you describe all, all the research that helps you figure out why people don't just automatically become utilitarians, and that gets really interesting. Um, so I, I guess we should sort of get, you know, go over that. So what's trolleyology? Because <laughs> that's what it is. Okay. Yeah. So this is, uh, to put it in Danny Kahneman's term, this is morality fast and slow. And where a lot of my own thinking about this came from is thinking about this set of philosophical dilemmas known as the trolley problem. So I know this is familiar to a lot of people, but since not everyone's heard of this, I'll, I'll, I'll go Everybody kind of it. knows so, it. Once you start saying it, they're going to be like, aha, I know what that is. Go ahead. All right. Well, I'll, I'll so very quickly. So one version, trolley headed towards five people. They're going to die if you don't do anything, but you can hit a switch that will turn the trolley away from those five people onto a sidetrack so you can save them. But on the sidetrack is one person. And if you ask people, is it okay to hit the switch so that you save five lives at the cost of one, most people say yes. And this is consistent with a utilitarian approach that is essentially just trying to maximize the, 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 the quality of the, of the outcome. Better to have five people alive and one dead than the reverse. Um, contrasting case. Trolley is headed towards five people, and uh, this time you're on a footbridge over the tracks in between the trolley and, and, and the five. And now the only way you can save these five people is to push this big guy off of the footbridge and onto the tracks. And he'll get hit by the trolley and he'll die, but it'll stop the trolley from running over the five people. And, you know, people out there in comment land know you cannot jump yourself. <laughs> yes, this will work. We're making these assumptions for the purpose of, 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 of this hypothetical. Uh, here, even making those assumptions, most people say that it's not okay to push the guy off the footbridge. And the people who do do so somewhat reluctantly. Um, and so, so the question is, well, why is this? Why do we say that it's okay to trade one life for five uh, to say five here, but not there. People care about the means by which it's being done. They actually don't just do the math. That's right. So the psychological theory is that we're all doing the math and we can all see that, that it makes sense, that, you know, at least in a way, if not completely, to trade one life for five. But in the Footbridge case, there's something about that action that the theory is that it triggers an emotional response that makes you say, no, that just feels wrong. Uh, so evidence, first, how do we know that it's emotional? So the, the first experiments to get at this were brain imaging studies that I did. But I actually think it's clearer to look at some other studies done by other people, uh, some of them using uh, or examining the judgments of people with damage to a part of the brain called the ventromedial prefrontal cortex, which is uh, a hub for the integration of emotional signals into decision-making. This is the part of the brain that was damaged in the famous case of Phineas Gage, which may be familiar to some people. Yeah. Uh, in your intro neuro course everybody encounters Phineas Gage he's the guy yeah that's right yeah so Phineas so these these Phineas Gage like patients you ask them is it okay to push the guy off the footbridge 
In that case, they're twice as likely to say that it's okay. In other cases that are similar, they're five times as likely to say that it's okay to harm someone in order to save more lives. So what this suggests is that there's an emotional response that makes most people say no to pushing the guy off the footbridge uh, that competes with the utilitarian rationale. These patients, they don't have that emotional response, at least not to the same extent, but they still see the utilitarian rationale, and so they end up being much more utilitarian. And when you look at people, if you look at the brains of people who are healthy, who are making these judgments, when they make the utilitarian judgment and say, okay, I guess it makes sense to kill that guy, even though it feels bad, save more lives, you see more activity in a different part of the brain called the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, which is sort of the, the, the seat of what we call cognitive control. And so my, my metaphor for these two kinds of thinking uh, is like a automatic settings and manual mode. So this comes from thinking about a camera, like a digital SLR, uh, where you have your automatic settings like portrait mode or landscape mode, which is quick point and shoot. And, and you also have your manual mode where you can adjust all the settings yourself. And the idea is that the brain has the same kind of strategy. Our automatic settings are our gut reactions. They're quick. They're efficient. They do a good job most of the time, but they're not very flexible. Whereas manual mode is very flexible, but it's not very efficient. So you, you know, if, if your manual mode is basically your, your ability to stop and consciously explicitly think and take in all of the facts and try to put it all together into a, a, a decision that you can explicitly justify. So this is morality meets, meets Daniel Kahneman, like you said. I mean, he, exactly. He, and, and just as I understand Kahneman, it, the reason he would say that this dual process, they call it, exists. You know, in other words, the quick economical thinking and then the more elaborate, slower, um, thorough thinking, let's call it, is because basically we're conserving energy. I mean, the brain can't be doing the latter kind all the time because it just takes up too much of uh, ultimately the calories, right? So a lot of things have got to be run on automatic. Well, I think that's that's one reason for it. Another reason is just that, you know, it's dangerous to think too much, right? So take the case that I described before, right? That if, if you want people to be us-ish instead of me-ish, if you let people think about it rationally, they can come up with all sorts of reasons why in this case it really makes sense for me to do what happens to be best for me. But if you have gut reactions uh, that are going to make you be nice to other people, that in, in some sense is more reliable. So it, it can be more efficient, efficient in a physiological sense that you described. It can also be more reliable in the sense that it sort of keeps you on the, the straight and narrow and makes it so that you don't have to think. Um, also, the kind of more elaborate thinking didn't evolve until more recently. Uh, so our social emotions, our gut reactions are much older. I mean, most animals, all they have are automatic settings. They don't have the ability to explicitly think consciously about the, the, the decision problems the way that they face the way that we do. Let me just, uh, I just can't resist throwing in somewhat current events to this discussion. So uh, you remember um, the Syria issue. Uh, the question was, you know, they used chemical weapons. So what are we going to do? This is intolerable for that to happen. And, and so some people said, well, I mean, a lot of people died with conventional weapons. Why, why is the way that people die, chemical weapons, the, the reason that something has to be done when you didn't step in and do anything when they're just killing each other with regular weapons? I mean, is this not sort of a similar case where the, the chemical weapon feels somehow more wrong in some emotional sense? Yeah. So I think it both in terms of the phenomenology of it and the underlying rationale, I think it's a very astute analogy. So what, you know, people sometimes in the international relations and law literature refer to this as having bright lines, right? So it's not, it's not necessarily that 
using, you know, you can have a low-grade chemical weapon that is less dangerous than a big-time conventional weapon, right? And you could have a low-grade nuke that's less dangerous than a big-time conventional bomb. But there's a bright line between the chemical stuff and the nuclear stuff. And if you, if you make it about how powerful or dangerous is the weapon, then you just have this smooth continuum of power and dangerousness with no obvious place to draw the line. So even if just on the merits, you might say that some chemical weapons are, uh, are, are equivalent functionally to some conventional weapons, if there's an opportunity to draw a bright line and the benefits of drawing that bright line, using that as a heuristic, in a sense, as a kind of fast thinking about it, right? If the benefits of drawing that line outweigh the costs, because even though in some cases you're, you know, maybe we maybe we'll be better off sometimes if we could just use tactical nukes or tactical chemical weapons in a limited way. But then you lose the advantage of being able to say, okay, we have a line that we can draw here. And I think that that's what our emotions do. So you might say, well, how bad is it to tell a lie in this case? Or how bad is it really to push the guy off the footbridge? After all, it's saving more lives. But if you just have a line that says, don't lie or don't commit personal acts of violence, uh, essentially your emotions draw that line for you. And you, you can override those emotions. You might make exceptions, but it's much harder to do it when you have that emotional response saying, don't cross that line. So I think they, they serve a similar kind of functional role of giving you a quick, efficient, reliable response that's, that you're better off having than not, even if it doesn't necessarily get the optimal answer in every case. But ultimately in the book, what you want is you want the manual override a lot of the time. I mean, because sometimes. Sometimes. Right. Okay, and, so right. let's, let's move on to that now because, I mean, you, you set up the trolleyology. You've explained why sometimes... Uh, Right. The emotions lead to a different place than the manual system would. Um, so how do you want to restore uh, the, the utilitarian result that you, receive, that you get to manually, I guess? Right. So the idea is that there really are, to get back to sort of herders and tragedies, uh, there really are two fundamentally different kinds of problems. There is the basic cooperation problem of me versus us, and then there's the more modern problem of us versus them. We're getting a bunch of different us's to cooperate. Now, it's not that historically us versus them hasn't been a problem, but historically it's been a tactical problem rather than a moral problem. It's how do we beat or defend ourselves against the other tribe as opposed to how do we come up with a system that we can all live under. Um, and the, the thesis of the book is that when it comes to the basic moral problem of me versus us, of selfishness versus caring about other people, that's where our gut reactions are pretty good. That's what they evolved biologically and culturally to do. And so that's where we want to trust our automatic settings. When it comes to us versus them with different groups that have different uh, judgments and different feelings about things like gay marriage or Obamacare or uh, Israel versus uh, Israelis versus Palestinians. Uh, that's where our, our gut reactions are the source of the problem. Those groups feel very strongly about those disagreements. And so you can't resolve that problem by appealing to gut reactions. Uh, and the only alternative then is to shift into manual mode. That is to think explicitly about the problem. And then the question is, well, what does manual mode thinking mean? And this is a, a much longer discussion really than we can have here. But what I, what I argue in the book is that uh, what I call deep pragmatism, which is I think a better way of thinking of what has historically been referred to as utilitarianism, is the kind of meta-morality that we need. So the idea is that what a basic morality is, is a system for, for, for resolving 
conflicts of interest among different me's, among individuals who might form a group. And a metamorality is a higher order moral system that allows uh, groups with different moralities to that, that regulates the interaction among groups that each have their own moral systems. And there are sort of two main tenets to deep pragmatism. So one is the golden rule, the idea that nobody's well-being counts ultimately more than anybody else's. And that's part of really almost every sort of moral outlook in some sense. And then the more distinctive part is the idea that the real common currency, what really matters ultimately is the quality of people's experience. That when you look at the values that we have and ask, well, why do we care about that? Why does it matter? Uh, if you follow those chains of value back to sort of where they can't go any farther, uh, what you end up with is a concern for people's happiness or people's suffering for the, the, the lived experience of human life or even animal life for that matter. And so if you, if, if you put those ideas together, you get a dictum to maximize happiness impartially, to try to make things go as well as possible in terms of the experience for all involved, uh, where everybody's, everybody's experience counts equally. And uh, this has a number of very counterintuitive inclusion, conclusions, at least in hypothetical cases like the Footbridge case. But uh, what I argue is that uh, we, should, we shouldn't give those intuitions too much credit, that what we really need is this higher order system that we can appeal to when trying to resolve our intertribal disagreements. So I guess I would call myself a, you, you say a deep pragmatist. I mean, certainly I am sympathetic to this being the best solution for morality that anybody can get. But what, what, what I was struggling with in the book is that you go to all this time to explain why there are all these emotional reactions that are set against people stepping out of their group to actually do this meta thing. Uh, and yet you say we got to step out of our group to do this meta thing. I mean, like, isn't that like, wouldn't it have already happened already if it was going to happen? Um, well, to a large extent, it has. I mean, I think that w w what we have done in a kind of half aware sort of way is our world is more utilitarian than it used to be. I mean, the world is getting to be a happier and more cooperative place where people care much more than they used to about people who are not members of their traditional tribe. So in a sense, I think it already is happening. And I, the, the best description of this process that I've seen is in Steven Pinker's recent book, uh, The Better Angels of Our Nature, which is really, it's about the decline of violence over the course of human history, but really it's about the rise of cooperation and enlightenment values that members of all tribes uh, can share. So the question is, why, why should we put aside our gut reactions or why haven't we done so already? I think to some extent we have, and what I'm urging us to do is to think more explicitly about what we've done right with an eye on doing it even better. Is there some particular intervention or something you can do that actually promotes this kind of behavior? I guess, you know, I'm, I'm trying to think of what, what it would be that shown to work. So I, Right. So I, I think the, the, the biggest part of this is just a kind of scientific self-knowledge, right? So uh, I'll give you an example that I think is, is well, I'll give you an example. So uh, years ago, the philosopher Peter Singer posed the following dilemma. He said, suppose you're walking uh, by a pond and there's a child who's drowning in the pond and you can wade in and save this child's life, but you're going to muddy up your fancy suit and your shoes and it'll cost you, let's say, $500 or $1,000 if you're a real dandy. Uh, uh, actually, I'm told that's not that much for a suit these days, but I'm a, I'm a simple dresser. Um, so uh, you, you could save the, you could wade in and save the child, but it'll cost you a fair amount. And you say, is that okay to 
to say, no, I'm going to save my suit. Well, if you'll say, no, you're a moral monster if you let this child drown because you're worried about your suit. Okay, so next case, uh, there are children on the other side of the world who are essentially drowning in poverty, and you could save their life uh, by pr- providing food and, and medicine, and you know, a $500 donation or a $1,000 donation could save a child's life, maybe several children's life, or at least have a pretty good chance of saving a child's life. And you say, well, I'd like to help, but I, I was going to buy this nice new suit instead of wearing my old suit, which is not quite as stylish. Do we think you're a moral monster for spending money on luxuries that are nice but that you don't really need when you could use that money to, to save someone's life? And we say, no, you're not a monster. Maybe you're not a saint, but you're not a monster. And what, what, what Singer's challenge was, was to say, why are these things really so different? Now, uh, philosophers have argued about this now for, for, for over four decades. I think the scientific perspective is really helpful here, right? So if we evolved – to, for life in, in, in small groups, right? Someone who's drowning right in front of you, that's someone you know or someone or, you know, some of the child of someone you know. It's a friend of a friend. There are no strangers in this world. And you will have someone's gratitude if you save that child and you will have someone's contempt if you don't. Uh, in the world of our ancestors, if that person's within your group, of course you should save them. It makes biological sense because you, your survival depends on being part of this group where people help each other out. But people on the other side of the world you know, that just doesn't matter from an evolutionary perspective. And so it makes sense that we have heartstrings that can be tugged, but not from very far away. I'm just wondering what bridges the gap. I mean, I'll give you an oh, example. Oh, so what I was going to say is yeah. understanding this, I think, bridges the gap. So the idea to, to, to come bring this full circle is once you see this, right, once you say, aha, the reason why I don't care that much about starving children on the other side of the world is because – I evolved to spread my genes in small cooperative groups, but spreading my genes in, in my ancestral environment or behaving in ways that would help spread my genes in my ancestral environment, that's not what I care about, right? And once, once you see this as a kind of cognitive limitation rather than as something that reflects some inherent moral truth, if you come to that conclusion um, – I think it makes it more likely that you're actually going to, to help out and care about people on the other side of the world. No, I know. That's it's a just, possibility. <laughs> well, you, but, your, but your answer is sort of ultimately enlightenment uh, in that sense. Yeah. And, and, and the thing, uh, maybe we are trending in that direction, but I just, I mean, I just, when I hear you say that, I can't help but think that, wow, there's a lot of people who don't even believe in evolution. They're really not going to want right. to <laughs> analyze themselves as a descendant of, you know. Right. But think how many more people do today than did 50 years ago or 100 years ago. Globally, probably, yes. Right. Uh, and think how many, how many cultures are, you know, there's a minority that, 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 I mean, if you look around, as you said, you said globally, that's right, that, you know, there are sort of local challenges to the scientific understanding of human nature in every tribe. But the scientific understanding of human nature is more or less the same in every tribe, right? So it's a kind of global minority, but that's growing and growing and growing with every, with every passing decade. You know, I'm just, I'm just thinking of another example of this. Uh, if, you, if you look at, uh, and I'm sorry, I'm forgetting the name of the hurricane. They call them cyclones in this part of the world. But it was very recently, and there was a, just a Category 5 complete killer in the Bay of Bengal, which is the most dangerous place to have these storms, right? Um, and it was going to go hit India. And what I was amazed by was that all of the Western media were sounding the alarm and saying, my God, this thing could kill a lot of people. They always kill a lot of people in this part of the world. If you had gone back, uh, say, three decades, they did kill a lot of people in this part of the world. And, and the level of consciousness, I would say even 10 years ago, of, of this was much lower. Like, you wouldn't get Western media you know, flipping out about something that's threatening India or 
um, Bangladesh. I feel like you know the circle of morality was wider than it used right. to be. No, Do you I know what I mean? Right. That there's a, there's a bigger us that's growing, and you know wherever you go, there are tribal forces that oppose that larger us. Uh, but the larger us is growing, and uh, what I'm arguing is that that larger us needs an explicit philosophy. Um, and that's that's what I'm trying trying to offer. Okay, well, I, I think that uh, we we totally understand the scope of it now. I mean, it's a, it's an amazing project where you both have to do the research and then you also have to be the philosopher. <laughs> so, well, thanks. hats off. Oh, thank you very much. Well, on that note, uh, Joshua Green, thanks so much for being with us on Inquiring Minds. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Great interview, Chris. It's really interesting. And, you know, I have to say, though, that this trolley problem has always bothered me. (laughs) Why? You know, I just don't know what the right answer is, because to me, it seems like doing nothing is the right answer, because then you're not responsible for anybody's death. Um, Really? They don't give you that option, I don't think. I know. You have to accept all the assumptions of the trolley problem, and you must choose. I know. Perhaps I'm too Canadian. Um, Uh, (laughs) Different kind of trolleys? Yeah. Trying to find a way out still. You know, because I remember reading about there's, you know, these levels of morality and, and in some ways just following these rules is, is along the simplest, um, um, you know, in, on the simplest steps of morality. And, and so anyway, it's, it's bothered me, but um, I'm, I'm glad to know there's a right answer, at least in some people's opinion. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly, you know, he's ultimately, uh, Green wants us to be utilitarian, but he's also saying, that, look, there are these weird scenarios that utilitarians have to choose. Uh, what to do in where nobody feels good about it. Uh, so it's actually very hard uh, for us to adopt his, even if it is the best philosophy. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's Machiavellian, right? And justifying the means. And, you know, a lot of us find that repulsive. But that's the point, is that we're finding out what makes us feel repulsed. Uh, and we're finding out how it varies. Uh, yeah. And I think that that's what's really valuable. And it's interesting how it's tied to literally repulsion, which is a gut reaction in the sense right. that you're essentially vomiting out what you're trying to get rid of. Um, you know, you're disgusted. It's a very physical thing. And uh, so it's interesting that he finds that, in fact, even our morality is is very much tied to our gut. Yeah. and But I mean, I, I just keep thinking about the implications for uh in different areas, like let's say war, you know, I mean, it means that you're not going to, a lot of people might not feel as, as nearly as repulsed if they just have to push a button to send a bomb as opposed to if they have to actually go and physically do it. I mean, that's a really big thing. It uh, is. And because it, we shouldn't yeah. be making it easy. <laughs> that's right. You know, by having buttons to push if it really is this different in, in terms of your brain. Yep, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Well, that, that's one of the implications. But that's it for another episode. And I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. To find us online, visit climatedesk.org. And you can also find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and on Facebook at slash Inquiring Minds Podcast. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration including The Atlantic, the Center for Investigative Reporting, The Guardian, Grist, Mother Jones, Slate, and Wired. Our music is provided by the award-winning producer Rian Sheehan, and we are your hosts. I'm Chris Mooney. And I'm Indre Viscontis. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California... And starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. 
It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.